So we are continuing our study in the book of Hebrews, and this morning we start chapter 3. And a few things about chapter 3, if you, if you notice the first word, if you have your Bible, you see the first word is going to be that little word, therefore, which means that everything that comes today relates to what came before. Now last week we had our Invitation Sunday, and so the prior content might not be so fresh in our minds. Uh, however, that therefore calls it to be fresh in our minds. And for this reason, before we actually start into chapter 3, let's do a quick little recap so far of the book of Hebrews to see uh, how we've led up to chapter 3. So, so chapter 1, God is speaking through the Son, who is the exact representation of God, and it is thus much better than the angels. Chapter 2, there's a warning that we, we should pay attention and not drift away from the salvation which God himself testified to in Christ. And, and also, this salvation entails Christ's human nature. He's 100% God, but he is also 100% human. And, and this human nature doesn't detract from his excellence in any way. He is still better than the angels because his human nature served a magnificent purpose. It enabled him to, to resonate with our human temptations, to be our great high priest, to be our mediator, making appeasement for sin to fulfill the great work of salvation. And, and then, it says, therefore, then in light of these facts, chapter 3, begins. So, so let's now go to the Word of God and see where the author of Hebrews takes us next from there. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. The Holy Scripture says this, starting at verse 1, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of, much, uh, of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and our boast and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the days of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts, and they, do, they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for yourself, for Christ. Lord, I pray that in each one of our hearts here this morning, God, you would illuminate Christ brightly, that we would leave this place with a greater grasp of who you are, and we would be motivated by our understanding of you. Lord, let this miracle happen now, I pray, for your namesake, for your glory, in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. So the title of this morning's message is Consider Jesus. And that is what verse 1 that we read tells us to do. It says, therefore, consider Jesus. And this is not a consider like a maybe, maybe I'll take Jesus, maybe I'll leave him. All right? This is a consider in the sense of of pondering and meditation, an intentional focus of our minds on Christ. That is important. We cannot just coast along the Christian life. We need to focus and consider the Lord. Think about him and think about all he is and all he has done and the ramifications of what that means. 
That is what it means to consider, to let it roll over in your mind who Jesus is. And friends, when persecution comes, when things begin, begin to get tough, the author of Hebrews, he just says, hey, consider Jesus. That is what Hebrews has all been about. That is how you, you fight uh, persecution and, and, and that ability to, oh, I want to give up. You get rid of that by thinking about Jesus. That's what the author tells him to do. And all of Hebrews is very Christ-centric. And so all of these messages naturally sort of have a two-fold ring to them. The first is that Jesus is better than something, and we've already seen he's better than the angels in the past. Uh, today we're going to see something else that he's better, better than as well, which will uh, be really exciting as we ponder Christ. But then there's the second aspect here for us to, in light of that, hold fast to who he is, to not give up the faith. Friends, these two ideas that Christ is better and holding fast, they're intimately connected. They are, um, as we consider Christ, as we consider that Christ is better than something and ponder that, that is where we get our strength to continue onward. That is where we get our ability to hold fast. The reason we hold fast is because of our understanding of Christ. The author of Hebrews knows that being in awe of Jesus is the way we get the motivation to press on. When you're under persecution or when you're struggling, is this our first response to merely just, let me think about Jesus. Hold on, I'm really feeling it. Let me think about Jesus. It should be. That's, that's what the scripture is calling us to do. Meditating on the person of Jesus Christ is the way to combat temptation when we feel like quitting. Uh, in preparing for this message, I heard a quote by a man named Neil Martin. Here's what it says. It says, nothing is so effective as an awareness of the character of Jesus. This sort of awareness drives away thoughts about rejecting Jesus and replaces them with wonder as to why we imagined we should ever want to. This then, above all else, is a matter towards which we should turn our prayerful attention in our struggles. For there is nothing else so perfectly adapted to assist and encourage us in our efforts to keep going. And that is the goal this morning. That is the goal every time we meet. To, to ponder Christ, to see him as more and more worthy, and to be encouraged to hold fast to him until the end. And, and it is to this end, with these things in mind, that the passage calls us to consider two things. Two things. The first is that we are to consider that Christ is better than Moses. And the second is we are to consider the warning to not reject Christ. Those are the two things the author of Hebrews is calling our attention to. So let's talk about this first one. Consider that Christ is better than Moses. The temptation for these Jewish Christians was to look at Christ as sort of a non-essential figure. Take, it, take him or leave him. You know, he's not super important. He's a nice addition, but he's, he's not super important. And then if they had that understanding, you see, they could easily slip right back into Judaism and avoid that persecution that was ramping up. Now, in, in Judaism, Moses was so important, he was not really a take-it-or-leave-it figure in Judaism. So, so the author is arguing in this sort of way. He says, if Moses is not a take-it-or-leave-it sort of figure, and Christ is better than Moses, then Christ is not a take-it-or-leave-it figure. He is far superior to Moses. Therefore, to reject Christ and accept uh, the old, old way and accept Moses, it's entirely inconsistent and it is accepting the lesser over the greater. Jesus is better than Moses. This is his, the author's line of, of thinking here. Now, I, I want us uh, to help understand this point. I want us to really see Moses, how the Jews see Moses. That is important, because for us, Moses is, you know, he's amongst, he's, he's an important figure. He's amongst biblical figures, uh, you know, along with David and Abraham and Moses and, you know, Elijah. You know, we, we talk about him. However, for the Jews, Moses was one of the enormous figures of their faith. 
There were really two. There was Abraham and there was Moses. And Moses, he's a part of that big two. He is a central figure in Judaism. And the reverence for Moses in Judaism is second to none. I mean, think about it. From the very beginning, Moses is under the threat of death as a baby, remember? And he's sustained by a divine miracle, alluding to a divine purpose in leading the entire nation of Israel out of Egypt. Moses was divinely chosen for an epic task that affected the entire history of Israel forever. Think about this as well. The law came through Moses. In fact, it was often called the law of Moses. He was the person who delivered God's commandments to the people, sort of functioning as a prophet, the person God used to talk to Israel. It's a big deal. Moreover, the method of communication between God and Moses, it's also noteworthy. Uh, Numbers chapter 12, verse 6 to 8 indicates that God communicated to Moses directly. It says that Moses uh, was not speaking to God, you know, or God wasn't speaking to Moses through visions and dreams, but directly, it says in that, that chapter. Now, that's incredibly weighty. People don't just talk to God directly, especially in Old Testament thinking. To speak to God directly is an enormous indication of the holiness that someone has. In that same chapter, Numbers chapter 12, states that Moses was more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Deuteronomy 34 indicates that God buried Moses in an anonymous grave. And a lot of people think that the reason why that that was done is because the people would actually take the bones, if they knew where they were, and set up an idol and worship. This is the kind of reverence the Jews had for, the, for Moses. Okay, this is the kind of thinking they're coming from. And it is with this understanding of Moses that the author of Hebrews writes chapter 3. So, so the question remains, how is Christ better than Moses? And we see a few ways. I think a lot of them are, are functional in, in the role, and, and we'll see that come out. Here's the first thing that it says in chapter 3. It says, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, consider the apostle of our confession, Jesus. This is the only place in the New Testament where Jesus is called an apostle. Now, this is not to be confused with how we understand the term apostle, you know, leveling Jesus sort of with Peter and Paul or apostles like that. Apostle simply means a sent one. It could be kind of understood as maybe an ambassador. And Jesus is indeed the great apostle, sent from the Father, representing God to mankind. The apostle from heaven to earth with a heavenly calling and purpose. It's sort of relating back to chapter 1. Uh, in, in some ways, chapter 1, verse 2, reiterating the fact that God speaks through the Son. In these, these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, it says in chapter 1, verse 2. He is the final word to human beings. It's far superior to Moses. Yes, Moses spoke directly to God, according to Numbers. And yes, Moses delivered the law. But Jesus, you see, Jesus is God. You can't get any better than that. The perfect ambassador, the exact representation, the ultimate sent one. And uh, friends, are you glad that the Father sent Jesus as the ultimate apostle? This is what the author of Hebrews is inviting us to consider. This is what he wants us to, to kind of chew on and understand and delight in. Thinking about Christ as the sent one, the apostle, will keep you from quitting in this Christian life. You know, Muhammad, not the sent one. Buddha offers no understanding of what God is like. Politicians certainly will never represent God. At least not perfectly, maybe to a measure, but certainly not, not perfectly. Moses, though he was faithful in his own right, he could not represent all that God was. He would mess up. Moses would actually bar himself from entering the promised land. Brothers and sisters, there's only one perfect representation 
It's God himself in the flesh, Christ Jesus. Do not forsake that truth for something inferior. The best has already been revealed, friends. The author is essentially alluding to the fact that Jesus, he has a special role that Moses could never appropriately perform. And we see another role that Jesus has is the role of high priest in the the same verse here. Therefore, holy brethren, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, now Moses never really played this role as a high priest. His brother Aaron did, and in a less than perfect way, mind you. However, remember, Jesus is the great high priest. Remember, the author already has described this amazing role in chapter 2, verse 17. He says, therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brothers so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation or appeasement for the sins of the people. Moreover, recall uh, the last time I preached in Hebrews chapter 1, he sat down, meaning his priestly duty was, was finished. It is done once and for all. And, and now, you see, the author of Hebrews wants you to consider that work, wants you to consider him as a priest. Why return to an old system where sin isn't appropriately dealt with when we have the high priest? Consider the work Christ has done. Consider the eternal benefit that is offered to you and offered to me. In light of that, how could we possibly quit? He has given everything for us, done the ultimate priestly work in its entirety. It is finished. So often I think we we kind of get it, you know, we, we say we get it and we go on our way. But friends, this scripture here is, is God's way of beckoning you to consider once again the priestly work of Christ and, and look at it as beautiful. Maybe we are tempted to quit. Maybe we are despondent and discouraged because we are not considering this enough. You know, in the Christian life, the gospel is not something we graduate from. It is something we live off of. We need to be considering this more. Pondering all of these these things, pondering the love that was displayed, the justice that was performed at the cross. Ponder the sacrifice, ponder the pain of our Lord, ponder this salvation often. Jesus provided this salvation. And as Brother Paul preached from chapter 2, verse 3, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? You know, we think it's easy, uh, easier, we're deceived, to think it's easier to forsake the high priest and return to an insufficient model. That, that isn't easier. That's far more difficult. That offers no rest. Consider the high priestly work of Christ. Let it roll over in your mind. Meditate on it day and night until you come to that place where you recognize how beautiful it is in light of your need. Jesus is better than Moses because Jesus is our high priest. Moses never had that role. Let's move on. Um, Jesus is better because he is faithful to the Father. He is faithful to the Father. The scripture says, Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. Now, remember the argument. Moses was so important that he was not really a take-it-or-leave-it figure. Moses wasn't a take-it-or-leave-it figure. And so Christ, who is better than Moses, also is not a take-it-or-leave-it figure. And so in affirming the faithfulness of Moses, the author is using that Jewish reverence for Moses that we talked about and that was towards Moses. And now he's using that same reverence to further bolster an even greater reverence towards Jesus Christ. And this, is, this isn't painting Moses in a negative light. Uh, I mean, it's saying that Moses was faithful here. I, I like the way John Piper puts it. He says, this is an elevation of Moses and then a super elevation of Jesus. There is both comparison and contrast taking place. 
And it is in verse 2 we see a comparison, a positive light. How is Jesus like Moses? Well, he's like Moses in that he is faithful. The highlight here is the faithfulness of Christ to do all he did. Moses was faithful in his house. The author is using the background of Moses' faithfulness to highlight the faithfulness of Christ in the unique roles that Christ played that were different than Moses. He's arguing that Moses was faithful to do his job, and Jesus, to a greater extent, is faithful to his superior, distinct job as God overall. And friends, the faithfulness of, of God is something that we also need to ponder, something we also need to consider when we feel like quitting. I am thankful that Jesus was faithful to obey his Father. He is trustworthy. He is reliable in all of his ways. He is faithful to save. He is faithful in his priestly duties. He is faithful to the Father. Jesus obeyed completely and is totally reliable. And you know, no other religion offers a character as faithful as Jesus Christ. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane? the sweat of blood dripping down Christ's face. Nonetheless, in that moment, he says, not my will, but yours be done. I will be faithful to my Father. He is faithful to the one who appointed him, and I am beyond thankful for the faithfulness that Christ has. We ought to ponder this more, brothers and sisters when you get persecuted for Jesus, when you miss out, when maybe your family doesn't like you anymore because of Jesus, when you face difficult things, when you're on your deathbed, you can bank on the faithfulness of Jesus Christ in the end. Faithful to the one who appointed him to do all he was supposed to do. Remember that faithfulness he has to the Father. Bank on that when you feel like quitting and press on, friends. So, so the author uses this Jewish view of Moses' faithfulness to ramp upwards to a super elevation of Jesus. And that is where the positive comparison ends. That is how Jesus and Moses are alike. They're both kind of faithful to do what they did. And he was using that, um, again, to bolster Jesus. And, and we know uh, that Moses had some unfaithful moments as well. But he's using this in light of the Jewish view of Moses to say, hey, Jesus is even, even more faithful. Um, but that, that's where the comparison ends. And now there's a, a contrast that's taking place here. Uh, and that contrast has to do with uh, another role that Jesus uh, has. Uh, he is the builder Jesus is better because he is a worthy builder. Here's what the scripture says. It says, for he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. You see, so Moses was faithful in the house, but he could not build the house. Jesus had a unique role that Moses could never play. He is the builder of the house, the creator of the house. So, so yes, there's a comparison of, of faithfulness, but there's a contrast of roles, you see. And this is, uh, again, going back to some points made earlier that Christ is the creator of all things, right? Go back to chapter 1. But, but even more, it's, it's talking about him creating his church, the salvation. Moses could save no one. God alone could save. Christ alone could save. And he is the builder of the house. You know, as, as beautiful as the Sistine Chapel is, Michelangelo, to some extent, is, is better than the Sistine Chapel. Why? Because it came from him. And so there is no Sistine Chapel without Michelangelo, you see. It has a dependent relation on him. It is a funny thing to say that the art is better than the artist because the artist, through their creative will and act, expresses something from himself and brings it to being. Moses is not the designer. He is not the architecture. Jesus, on the other hand, is. He built the house. 
he built his own house. Now, obviously, again, all things were made through him, but specifically here, the house that was built, in this case, again, is those who would believe and trust on the Lord. And verse 6 gives us insight. What does it say about the house? It says in verse 6, we are the house. And we'll talk about that further. But, but you see, this is referring to the building of the house of the believers. God saw us our pitiful condition, and took us and transformed us into his house. Moses did not, moreover, could not establish the people of God. Moses could save no one. He could incorporate no one into God's building. Instead, as the scriptures indicate, he was a member of the house, a member of the people of God. He was in the house, but not the builder. There is one builder, one ruler, one person who saves and establishes his people. That is Christ. Friends, Christ is worthy of more glory than Moses because he is indeed the being who creates his people and makes them into what they are. Without Jesus, there is no people of God. There is no house. If you take Jesus out of the picture, friends, here today, we would not be brothers and sisters. We would have no eternal bond, we would have no salvation, and we would not be in the house of God. The reason we have salvation, the reason we are bound together as brothers and sisters, and we have all of these blessings, is because Jesus is the builder. Life is utterly hopeless without that builder. Therefore, do not go back to a time where the veil was over your eyes, a time where the builder was not in view. Friends, the builder is in view. He has been revealed. He has come in the flesh. The builder of the house of God, the establisher of our salvation is Jesus. A faithful builder and a faithful son. He is greater than Moses because he is a son of the Father, the Son. Scripture says this, now Moses was faithful in all his house, how? As a servant. But Christ was faithful as a son over the house. Lastly, sort of a, a parallel here, almost to verse two in, in many ways, we see that idea of faithfulness coming out again, faithfulness to do what the son should, should be doing. The faithfulness of Christ in fulfilling his role as a son to the father. Moses was a faithful servant, but Jesus is a faithful son over the house. Remember, again, Christ is the final word of God through, uh, through the son. He is it. Moses could not play that role, but could only point to it. The Scripture, scripture Act, in fact, says it. Uh, it's cut out here on the slide, but it says that he, Moses was faithful as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. That is Christ. Moses was pointing to something bigger. And friends, he was pointing to the Son. All of the Old Testament reveals God indeed. It is, it is inspired indeed, but it culminates and orients around the Messiah, the Son who came. The faithful Son, Jesus, that was to come, who came and, and died for our sins 2,000 years ago. He is the centerpiece of the revelation. Moses was an incomplete picture. A part of the picture, yes, but an incomplete picture. Why would we go back to such incomplete pictures? Jesus is the Son. Again, and that, that, that phrase, the Son, that entails the idea of the messianic role that he was to play. Again, a lot of what Gilson had preached on last time, that, that role that, that the Messiah played in eliminating death and coming to make appeasement and propitiation for our sins. He suffered. He suffered as a human, but he was perfectly obedient unto death. That, that messianic role as the Son to the Father who anointed him. He was faithful, a role Moses could never play. Remember in John chapter 6, the crowds dispersed and Jesus asks his disciples, he says, you do, not, you do not want to leave too, do you? Remember Peter's reply? Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? 
Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art Christ, the Son of the living God. For, for the Jewish Christians, it probably felt similar reading this letter as, as they pondered Jesus, the Son, and the roles that he played in his faithfulness in doing all of these things. Well, who are they going back to? Moses? You know, once you know, you know. You can't unknow. Christ was revealed as the Son of God. We have to live in light of that information. We have to hold fast because it's true, friends. He indeed is the Son of God. There's nothing to go back to. Friends, these aspects of Christ, they can't be ignored. Again, there are, are things, uh, these are things that we have to consider when we feel like giving up. You know, Peter didn't forsake Christ there because he was pondering Christ as son. Maybe elsewhere, if he went, there was some denials, he wasn't pondering as much. But he pondered Christ as the son of the living God. I pray that the Holy Spirit opens our eyes so we see the beauty of who Christ is and we delight from that source of living water. And so we wonder why we would ever want to forsake him. We ponder him as the builder, as the faithful son, all of these things, and we will hold firm until the end. And this brings us to the second point here. He sort of shifts now for pondering Christ, and now he's, he's kind of shifting a little bit and saying, well, here's what happens if you don't. Here's a, w w the rejection of, of Christ. Consider the warning to not reject, or, or the warning not to reject Christ. Um, and here is what it says in, in verse six. Uh, now, for me, you guys know Brother Paul Johnson has gotten uh, all of the warning passages so far, and God decided it was finally time for someone to share some of Brother Paul's burdens. So here the second part of the message is, is these, these warnings. Uh, the rest of the sermon is gonna be this warning. It's gonna highlight, again, the implications or results of rebellion against Jesus. And here's an implication, verse six. Christ was faithful as son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. An implication of rejecting Jesus is that you very well might not be a part of the house. Now, this confuses people, okay? Here is what it doesn't mean. It couldn't possibly be that our holding fast turns us into a part of the house. Okay, that's not what it's saying. This is not about how to be the house. This is about qualities of already being the house that Christ alone can build. You can't build that house or do anything to become a part of that house. That's Christ's work. Remember, Christ as builder, Christ as high priest, who makes propitiation for our sins. These, these facts have already been established by the author of Hebrews, and it would be foolish to take this verse and rip it from that larger context and somehow assert that our salvation causally depends on us holding fast. This is not causal. It is descriptive. Do you see the difference? This is not we gain entrance into being part of the house if we hold fast. It is description of already being part of the house. One commentator notes perseverance functions as evidence of an already existing right relationship to God. It seems significant that the author doesn't use the future tense. He doesn't teach that believers will belong to the people of God if they persevere. Right? What does the text say? It's, it's present. The text says whose house we are. It doesn't say will become, it says our description of what the house already is. Holding fast. Now, holding, why is this important? Well, holding fast, that's, you see, that's what houses built by God do. Jesus, the builder of the house of salvation, doesn't build a house that crumbles. Therefore, it is a description how people who have tasted salvation act. Not to be confused 
with some weird causal prerequisite or an earning of our position of salvation. Now, what does this mean for us? Well, it means necessarily, if we have truly tasted the salvation of God, we will hold firm. Friend, if you are part of God's building, in the end, you will hold fast. And this doesn't mean that there won't be seasons where it is difficult. Remember, even Peter denied Christ three times. It doesn't mean that we never mess up, but it means we will persevere. And when we consider Christ and when we think about him, he will draw us back because he's such a captivating figure for us. If we grasp who Christ really is, we realize he is the ultimate treasure and we would be fools to forsake him. Again, remember verse 1, remember the intent that the author has. Consider Christ. The author knows that this letter will necessarily be effective to those who hear it who are truly part of Christ's house. Those who indeed have grasped the message of salvation, who understand the deity of Christ and and the work that he has done and genuinely believe it, they, they won't forsake it because it is the ultimate treasure. And, and similarly, similar friends, if you feel like forsaking God, if you are about to call it quits and you hear this message, if you are indeed his, consider Christ. Consider him with me as you hear of his amazing roles, as, as you hear of his superiority. You will respond like Neil Martin and say, this awareness of Jesus drives away thoughts of rejecting him. You know, there was someone uh, I, I know who used to be a, a part of the youth group, and I invested in them. They started exploring other religions, and, you know, they almost forsook Christ. But in the end, the captivating person of Jesus Christ drew this person back. Why? Because if you are a part of the house, you will hold firm. You will love Christ. There simply is no greater thought to ponder. There is simply no greater treasure but that which is in Christ. It pales. Everything else pales in comparison. Again, it's this idea, where else would we go? If Jesus is God in the flesh, friends, there is nothing higher to consider. Now, again, we exist in in space-time. You know, I don't know how the end of people's stories, how, how it ends or what their heart is like, who can understand the heart of man. I certainly can't. But you know who does? The Lord. I cannot judge people's hearts and intentions. I cannot know for sure if someone's just in a struggling season or if indeed they've truly rejected Jesus. I'm, I'm just a man. But I do know this. For me, as a limited being, I can still ask you this question this morning. If Jesus is God, and if he has provided salvation, and, and you really understand these things, if, if that doesn't cause you to hold fast, I would I'd venture to say you don't understand these things. We should be captivated. The Holy Spirit lives in us. It will convict us. It will make Jesus beautiful to us if the Holy Spirit is living in you. And it is a blessing that we can sit here this morning and ponder him together. You know, I can't answer that question for you. If you really understand these things, I can ask it. I can't answer it. If you're not sure if you do, would you pray to God? That's what I did. That's, that's how I received salvation. I knew all the Bible verses. I grew up in a, in a wonderful Christian home. But what I did is I paused and I said, God, I don't really understand this. It's not beautiful to me. And I asked that the Holy Spirit would open my eyes. And all those verses I memorized came back with a new light. And God can do the same thing for you. He can make Jesus beautiful to you. I pray he does. So an implication of rejecting and rebelling against Jesus is that you may indeed not actually be a part of the house because his houses hold firm. He's a perfect builder, not an imperfect builder. He goes on, Verse 7, he says, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of trial in the wilderness. Do not harden your hearts. 
towards Jesus. Remember, we want to keep Jesus here. Yes, we're going to an Old Testament story, but he's using it. The author of Hebrews is using it to bolster his point about Jesus. He's saying, don't have a hard heart about Jesus. And so he begins with this Old Testament quotation. It's taken from Psalm 95, and it's a testimony really of national shame, the national shame of Israel in their wilderness experience, which was characterized by a lack of their trust and and unfaithfulness. And the author of Hebrews recounts this history to prove a point. Do not be like your ancestors in the wilderness. They had hard hearts towards towards God. They were stubborn. It means they were unable to be convinced because their demeanor was just so off. You know, what's the difference between something that's hard and something that's soft? Well, something that's hard, you're, you're not able to cut through that. Whereas something that is soft, you can easily slice through that. Now remember, again, this is used to bolster his point. He's saying, do not have a hard heart towards Jesus. Let the person of Jesus captivate you. Stop resisting. He is beautiful. It's true. So, so don't have a hard heart like, like your ancestors in the wilderness. Accept him. Consider him. Allow yourself to be convinced and captivated by the love that he has for you. Will you let the message of Jesus cut through your heart? Or is your heart too hard? Will you hear him this morning? You know, ironically, uh, this was actually a passage quite familiar to the Jews. Uh, every Sabbath when it, when it began, and, and they, they entered the synagogue, and they would quote from this, saying, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That's how they would begin their, their Sabbath service there. Uh, reminding themselves to be willing to hear what God is saying. Friends, are you really, truly willing to consider Jesus this morning? It doesn't matter if you've already considered him. By the way, you can reconsider him. We don't graduate from Jesus, right? We can still ponder him. Will you do that? Will you let God do that? Will you let the message of salvation cut through and transform your inner being? Or is there an excuse? Do not harden your heart, friend. Consider Jesus. Consider the great salvation he has offered and, and there's an urgency here as well. Look at what it says. It says, today, if you hear his voice, don't wait. Don't go home and pretend right, that God wasn't calling out to you. You're here for a reason. You're listening to this for a reason. Things aren't random. God is calling out to you. Will you respond today? We don't know when our final moments could be. You know, over the past year, we've lost so many people. Life's a vapor. Think about it. Consider Jesus today. There's no higher thought, no greater thing to consider. Your job is not worthy of more attention than Jesus. Your family is not worthy of more attention than Jesus. Consider him immediately, now, today. There is nothing greater you could put your thoughts to. Verse 8 goes on. He says, uh, we'll start, uh, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me and, by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Here's a, like a symptom of that hard heart. You always set the bar too high. What God offered was never enough. The past examples of faithfulness, consider this. Israel literally escaped, you know, I think there was a, a two million or I don't know, a ridiculous amount, I don't know it off the top of my head, but they escaped from Egypt. They walked right out, crossed the Red Sea, right? Bringing, they, they had food brought to them from, from heaven. They were guided by pillars of fire. All of this, though, was never enough when they encountered the Canaanites. Oh no, it's too, too difficult for God. <laughs> God couldn't possibly deal with the Canaanites, they thought, and so they wasted 40 years. And you know, it says there that God was working in those 40 years, still still doing miracle after miracle, but it was never enough. 
their hearts were hard. We will always want another sign. The Israelites, despite all God had done, didn't have the faith to take the promised land. Don't keep testing God. You know, there's historical evidence for the resurrection. God already affirmed it. Affirmed that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is God. Christianity is the most consistent worldview. And if you don't believe me, chat with me afterwards. I'd love to talk about it. Moreover, it says that it's been attested by God himself. Remember Paul's message from Hebrews 2? Sometimes it is a sheer lack of willingness that is our problem and a lack of faith that is our problem. Let's stop testing God and start walking in faith. The author expects us to learn from the experience of Israel. So let's stop questioning the motives of God. God loves us. God wants to reach out to us and wants to be known. He wants the best for us. So let's accept Jesus with a soft heart, with a willing heart to genuinely consider him, to consider the resurrection. Therefore I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They do not know my ways. Let it be known again, God revealed himself in many ways to Israel. It was not as if God didn't reveal to himself. He did. He saved Israel time and time again, revealed himself through the law. He he's always re was revealing himself to his people. However, the people, their hearts, they, they strayed. They, they, didn't, they weren't interested. They didn't have, remember I said, we can't just coast by. We have to focus. They weren't focusing on God. He wasn't worthy of that kind of attention. Oh, but he is. And Jesus is worthy of that kind of attention. Look, if, if there is an infinite being who has revealed himself and his will, and everyone does the opposite and, and fails to acknowledge him, you know, there's a just anger that ought to exist. They went astray in their hearts, sought something else. This is not right. God has revealed himself. He is a person reaching out. Don't reject him. Don't reject him willfully. If you do, I mean, you, you will provoke the anger of God. Therefore, I was angry. Again, remember, this is, this is really about Jesus here. If, if Jesus is indeed the full revelation of God, as the author of Hebrews has previously argued, and you reject that in your heart, there are going to be some issues for you. If, if the Jewish Christians rejected Jesus, they rejected God altogether. Certainly, if the Old Testament God is the same as the New Testament God, and you reject Jesus, who has been revealed, this is a sign that you reject the Old Testament God, too, that your whole orientation of heart is wrong. In other words, by rejecting Jesus, you return to the old way and show that you do not know his ways really at all. Certainly, this would make a perfectly just God who sacrificed and reached out and, and became a human to get to know you. And if you reject that, certainly there is just anger that is due. You know, we just, we, we really need to ponder him. It is so important because rejecting Jesus, it has real consequences. Verse 10, they always go astray in their heart. They do not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. You know, no, there are consequences for rejecting Jesus. I'm not, you know, preaching is a declaration. I'm not trying to convince you necessarily that Jesus is real. I'm declaring it to you that Jesus is God. What will you do with that information? If you reject it, there are consequences. There are consequences for denying Christ. You know, ironically, many people reject Jesus because they are searching for rest. Though, the reject, though through their rejection, they deny themselves the very rest that they seek. It says, they shall not enter my rest. These persecuted Hebrews were likely looking for rest. They probably wanted it pretty badly, and they began to 
you know, as they began to undergo this intensifying persecution, this story would have resonated with them. Those words, they shall not have or shall not enter my rest, probably struck a chord with, with the recipients of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews is using this story to say, pay attention, continue onward, consider the truth about Jesus, and you will have your rest, your rest that is actually in him. Otherwise, you know, there's nothing for us. There's an endless searching and an endless dissatisfaction, our own wandering in our own wilderness. You see, the rejection of Christ, it might sound convincing at times. The Jewish Christian probably at times thought it would really help them if they just kind of tossed aside this figure, Jesus. And likewise, you might think that sometimes it sounds convincing to reject Christ, but in the end, if we do this, we will have no rest. Do not believe the lie. And, and not only in this lifetime, but in the lifetime to come, when you die, again, there's an ang- a God who's revealed himself, and he is just. When you die, there's an eternal judgment for rejecting Jesus. And I believe this truly. Yes, hell is filled with all sorts of ugly things. We're not talking so much about them right now. But, but I believe this is the worst feature of hell. You miss out on Jesus. God says, okay, you've rejected me. There will be no rest for you. You will never find what you are looking for because it can only be found in one place. Jesus. I pray you would consider him this morning. So we have looked at um, Christ as as better than Moses, and then we also considered the warnings um, of what happens when we reject Christ and and that, that encouragement to stay firm and to not reject him. Friends, hold fast. Hold, hold on to the priceless pearl. Hold on to the treasure that we have in Christ. If, if Christ is the great apostle, the great high priest, the builder, the faithful son, then rest can be found in him alone. To reject him is to reject rest, reject blessing, reject being the house, and reject all that is good. Therefore, press on. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this word. Lord, continue to exalt yourself amongst us. And Lord, I pray right now that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, open eyes to the beauty that is you, Christ Jesus. Glorify your name now and give us the endurance and the ability to press on as we go. In Christ's name, amen.